Well, good morning again. Good morning. It is uh, a good day to be in the house of God. And I want to welcome each one of you. Thank you for, for coming. And I'm looking forward to opening the Word of God together with you. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the New Testament. As you remember, the last few weeks we've been talking about the battle for the Bible, how the Old Testament has been, had been criticized by the critics. The manuscripts, they said, were unreliable until that one day, about 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when a little shepherd boy threw a rock and found a cave and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And there we realized that since the time of Christ and even a few hundred years before the time of Christ, the, uh, the Bible had been transmitted and copied in a way that had protected and kept it very accurate. Today we're going to look a little bit about the New Testament. The Old Testament battle was won with the help of a shepherd boy named Muhammad. But the New Testament battle was won with the help of a discovery made by a German professor by the name of Constantin Tischendorf. Now, Tischendorf was a young man who gained his doctoral degree from the University of Leipzig. And uh, at that time, the prevailing attitude, this was the late 1930s, 1830s, the prevailing attitude was that the Bible wasn't trustworthy. In fact, higher criticism and textual criticism had sort of taken over the academic world. And when they looked at the New Testament, they said, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were really written several hundred years after the time of Christ. We don't even know who they were written by, the critics said. They were probably written by people who simply attached those disciples' names onto the writings so that they, you know, would have more credibility. The the writings of the Apostle Paul, the critics would say, were written by numerous people. You can tell the difference in the writing styles they claimed. And so Tischendorf began studying these criticisms of the New Testament, and they really bothered him. He was convinced that, in fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were credible accounts of the life of Jesus and that the, uh, the writers of those books were really named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was also convinced that Paul had written the letters which are attributed to him in the New Testament. And so he, he began looking at the, the manuscripts that were available at the time, and he was very frustrated because it seemed like the critics were able to, to too easily to criticize the uh, existing manuscripts and find faults with the with the uh, Bibles that were then in existence. And um, this spirit of criticism had begun with Edward Gibbon, perhaps, in the, uh, the author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, this is the quotation that I put here in your handout. Do all of you have a handout? Do you, do you need more of them? Okay. Um, he says in... Uh, Edward Gibbon says that Christian leaders had with rash and sacrilegious hands tampered with the manuscripts, rash and sacrilegious hands, as if they had tried to make the Bible say what they wanted it to say. Rash and sacrilegious hands, they had tampered with those manuscripts. Now, the four manuscripts, the four ancient manuscripts that the New Testament was was based upon, the, the best Bible we had at the time in 1838, just a, just a hundred and, <clears throat> what was that, a hundred and seventy years ago or so, um, these four main ancient manuscripts were, first of all, the Codex Alexandrinus. This was located in the, <clears throat> excuse me, the British Museum, 
But the problem with the Codex Alexandrinus was that it was incomplete. So not all the New Testament was there. And so the, uh, there were portions that were called into questions. The uh, Codex Claramontanus was in the National Library of Paris, but it also was incomplete. So here these two of the four ancient manuscripts were incomplete. And so they didn't have all of the New Testament to, um, to verify and to see, you know, this. By the way, these, these two were about 1,300 years old at the time. They were from the 6th century. The Codex Vaticanus was there in the Vatican, and it was a more complete transcript. There was a problem with that, though. The Vatican did not allow any Protestant scholar to have access to this manuscript. So the Codex Vaticanus was not available to any Protestant scholar. And the fourth and probably least significant of these um, manuscripts was a Codex Ephraimi. This was also in Paris, but a couple centuries after it had been written, this copy of the New Testament, it had been erased and the scrolls had been used for the uh, philosophies of a Syrian scholar by the name of Ephraimus. And so this, uh, this was a problem. This manuscript had been erased. And so this, these were the best manuscripts that, that, the, uh, that the church had at the time. And um, there, it didn't give a lot of opportunity for double-checking, you know, for comparing. And so the critics could say that these few manuscripts, they might be accurate, they might not be accurate, they probably couldn't be trusted. 600 years after the time of Christ, they were probably not... Um, representing what the early Christian church had. Now, this man, uh, Constantin Tischendorf, this German professor, he began a struggle, you might say, a life aim, a life goal. He would find more manuscripts of the New Testament. He would look for those ancient manuscripts. There had to be somewhere, in some abbey, in some monastery, in some library, in some vault, in some cave, just like they uh, would discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. He, he believed there had to be more manuscripts of the New Testament somewhere. And so Tischendorf began looking. He began writing. He began reading. And there was an American archaeologist by the name of Edward Robinson who had made some journeys through the Middle East and he had discovered a vast library of ancient scrolls in a monastery named St. Catherine's. Now, this St. Catherine's monastery is on Mount Sinai, at least what we today or the church today uh, considers Mount Sinai. It's not all uh, in agreement that this was, in fact, the, the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments, but... At any rate, Mount Sinai um, is the home of St. Catherine's Monastery. Now, if you were to go to St. Catherine's Monastery, and one of these days I, I really hope to go there, you'll find that this monastery is perched on the side of the mountain. And at least in, Constant, in Constantine's day, the only way to get into the monastery was if you had an official letter of invitation by the monks. And the monks would lower down a basket, and you would put your letter of invitation... This was after you got to, you know, Sinai and the Sinai Peninsula. You put your letter of invitation into the basket. They would pull the basket back up and see if, in fact, you were a, uh, uh, a welcome visitor. 
And then they would lower the basket back down with a crossbar on it for you to hang on to as they would crank you up the cliff to the monastery. And um, on that monastery, by the way, still today, is a shrub that they claim has been growing continuously since the time of Moses. It has characteristics that they say indicate it is the burning bush. Um, I have a little bit of doubts in my mind if it's really the burning bush. But at any rate, St. Catherine's is a an ancient monastery. And um, it had been founded in the year 527. St. Catherine had been um, impaled and then... Uh, burned at in the 4th century, but in 527, the 6th century, um, this monastery had been established there on what they believed to be Mount Sinai, on the location of what they think or they thought was the, that burning bush. And so the, it's, it's a unique history. It's, it has a unique history because for all those years, for, for nearly 1,500 years, St. Catherine's existed, never being... Um, um, uh, overcome by any vandals or robbers or anything of that sort because they developed a very uh, unique relationship with the, each successive power that came um, to be in that part of the, the Middle East. Uh, when Muhammad arose in the 7th century, the, the, uh, the monks at St. Catherine's went and appealed to him personally, to the Muhammad, as, uh, and, and asked for his protection and his favor as they continued their Christian worship and their Christian order there at St. Catherine's Monastery. And annually, every year, for the next thousand years, they renewed that request from the Muslim powers to be allowed to have their worship there and their Christian faith be practiced unmolested. And the sultans actually protected St. Catherine's. When the Crusades were going on, the monks at St. Catherine's literally requested of the Christian kings not to come and pay them a visit because they knew it might offend the Islamic powers and they wanted to be at peace with their neighbors. So for 1,300 years before the time of Tischendorf, St. Catherine's had existed as a Christian monastery unmolested. And this is why at St. Catherine's, there would be made one of the greatest discoveries that would confirm the authenticity of the New Testament. We're going to have to talk more about that next week because we're, we need to get into the Word, don't we? But this, uh, this, uh, this story is very fascinating to me because I believe it wasn't just coincidence that God protected those manuscripts. It wasn't just coincidence that these requests for protection were extended and, and granted. I believe God was looking out for us today that we might have confidence in knowing God's Word. We've been talking about God's Word so far. We've been talking about the inevitability of the Word. The Word of God does indeed carry with it creative power. It does not. It is not like a man's Word. Remember the prophecy of Balaam. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that, that he should repent. If he said it, it's going to happen. He's going to make it good. That's the way God's Word is. God's Word never returns unto him void. Isaiah says. And so when God's word says something, it doesn't matter how much we disbelieve it or believe it. It doesn't matter how much we like it or dislike it. It doesn't matter how much we wish it would change or we want it to change or we even deny that it's true. 
All those things don't matter because God's word is inevitable, right? We've also looked at how God would have us to make his word relevant. Many Christians, they might believe the word of God to be true, but they simply apply it to everyone else on the pews around them except for themselves. In so doing, they do what Peter did, remember? When Jesus said to him, he said to the disciples, all of you will be offended tonight because of me. And Peter said, that means everybody except who? Except Peter. Though all men should be offended, yet will not I, he says. So easy for us to do what Peter did. In fact, I find myself reading that study, that story, and even preaching that sermon and thinking subconsciously in my mind, if I had been there, I wouldn't have done that. But I'm doing exactly what he did when I do that, right? I'm applying the word of God. It means something for somebody else, but not for me. So today we're going to be talking about the urgency of the word. Today I believe we need the word of God, perhaps more than any other time in earth's history. In the word of God, we find the revealed, the infallible will of God. We find strength for the weary, comfort for the grieving, refreshment for the thirsty, and courage for the faint of heart. The word of God is good news. It's a fountain of life to those who turn to it. But we have a problem today, and I I see that among Christians. It's not so much a problem of not having the Bible, because we have the Bible, right? We have more Bibles in our procession in America than probably any society has had at any time in history. We have the Word of God. We even read the Word of God or hear the Word of God. Yet sometimes we forget to recognize that when we read the Word of God, when we hear the Word of God, there comes with that reading and hearing an automatic responsibility to do something about what we hear. Are you with me? So so often we, we enjoy hearing, we enjoy reading, we enjoy maybe gaining some thought, some knowledge, some some idea, some philosophy that we can tuck away in our memory bank and perhaps impress our neighbors or our, just ourselves with the satisfaction of knowing these things. But yet we don't do much about what we know. How often do we hear a sermon, maybe a good sermon, and being impressed by the truth or being impressed by the word, yet we leave church not really having made any decision to do something? as a result of what we've heard. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel, because I think this passage in Ezekiel 33 describes perhaps Christianity today. I hope it doesn't describe us, but as I look into my heart, I think too often it does. Ezekiel chapter 33, turn with me there, and we're going to look at verse uh, beginning at verse 30. Ezekiel 33, it's in the Old Testament, sort of, middle of the Bible, just after Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah and Jeremiah, major books, and then Ezekiel's the next major prophet. Ezekiel 33 and verse 30 says, Also thou son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes from the Lord. Now, that's a good thing if that's happening, isn't it? Wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't we be happy if the people around Naperville were going to their neighbors and say, Hey, come, let's go to church. 
let's go hear a good sermon. Wouldn't, wouldn't we be pleased by that? I mean, God is speaking to the prophet. And he's saying, These are what, this is what people are saying. So far, we think that would be a good thing, right? That would be admirable. If, if people were saying, hey, and they were talking to all their friends, all their family members, all their relatives, hey, let's go hear the word of God. That would be a wonderful situation. I mean, in my book, at least. I mean, I would, I would be happy if people were saying, hey, let's go to church. Let's go hear what God is going to say to us today. In verse 31, God continues, however, and the picture becomes a little less rosy as God continues. He says here in verse 31, And they come unto thee as the people comes, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not what? They will not do them. So this is a group of people who like to hear good sermons. They like to hear Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a powerful prophet. I mean, Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a message from God. And so these people, God's people, they would come and they would listen to Ezekiel preach. But there was a problem. They liked to hear, but they didn't like to what? They didn't like to do. For with their mouth, he continues in verse 31, they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. Verse 32, And lo, you are like uh, you are unto them as a lo- very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. The Bible, God is here telling Ezekiel that these people come to hear good sermons out of entertainment. They like to hear it. The principle is, the people evidently knew too much, but they were doing too little. The people knew too much, but they were doing too little. You think that might be a problem even today, 2,500 years later? Human nature is still the same, isn't it? Sometimes we want to, we want to hear, we want to know, we want to have, be able to pat ourselves on the back and say we understand, we have the truth. But if I look in my heart, I realize that too often it's easy to know, but not to do. So God wants us to both know and to do. I want to look at the urgency of the word. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark. I like the book of Mark for one particular reason, more than one reason, but I'm going to just mention one here today. Mark, more than any of the other gospel writers, he, he captures the urgency with which Jesus went about his work. The what? The urgency. You see, we, we sort of, we don't, we don't always catch this from the rest of the Bible writers, although we're going to look in Luke, and we had a scripture this morning from Matthew. So they had it too, but, but Mark, more than the other writers, he uses language, he uses um, descriptions and action verbs and adverbs that convey this urgency with which Jesus went about his work. In fact, if you'll notice with me in Mark chapter 1, we find the calling of the disciples, at least several of them. Notice with me in Mark chapter 1, let's just beginning with the context in verse 15. This is Jesus and he began preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So here we find that Jesus began doing his work with this, this, uh, 
this urgency based upon the fulfillment of time prophecies, right? And he's saying the time is fulfilled. It's time for the gospel to be given to the world. It's time for the Messiah to come. He was anointed at his baptism. He began preaching this message. The time is fulfilled. Well, if now is the time. Now brings with it some urgency, right? Now is the time. And notice what, Ma- what Mark says in verse, verse 18. Uh, well, verse 17. Jesus said unto them, this is Simon and Andrew, and he said unto them, Come on ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Verse 18. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. How does Mark describe it? Does he say, oh, they left their nets and followed him? What does he say? Straight away. Right away. If we skip down a little farther, verse 20. Jesus is walking along further and he sees James and John, the two brothers, sons of Zebedee. By the way, Zebedee was evidently a very successful fisherman. Um, we don't know a lot about a lot of these uh, people, but Zebedee, we have found uh, coins and other um, artifacts with the, the, ho- the, the household of Zebedee stamped upon it. He must have been a pretty uh, successful man. Here, James and John, he's, he's walking along the coast there and he sees James and John and Jesus says to them, verse 18, uh, uh, verse, sorry, Verse 20, and straightway he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Notice they went on to Capernaum and and says straightway on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and dwelt. If you look throughout the book of Mark, you will find a lot of these references using the word straightway or immediately. Notice verse 28, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the land. If you look down through verse 42, and as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he, verse 43, he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. Uh, while, while the other gospel writers sort of tell what Jesus did, Mark conveys that he did it with, with a sense of urgency. He was doing it with a with a sense of urgency. And you can go on throughout chapter 2, verse 2. And straightway there were gathered together. Many were gathered together. Verse 8. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit. Verse 12. And immediately he arose and took up his bed. This, these action words are all throughout the book of Mark. There was something intense about the ministry of Jesus. There was something urgent about his ministry. And so these action words are sprinkled throughout the book of Mark and and the other Gospels, but not to quite the same degree. Notice with me in Luke. Turn with me to Luke now, chapter 9. We're going to look in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to see there another instance. It's similar to our scripture reading this morning from Matthew. And um, I think this is interesting because Luke here is recording what took place when Jesus invited some disciples to follow him. We've just looked at the urgency with which Jesus asked Peter and and Andrew and James and John to follow him, right? And immediately they left their nets and followed him. They sensed this urgency. Here we're going to find in Luke chapter 9 that not everyone who Jesus approached and invited to be disciples saw the urgency of the call. Notice with me in in Luke chapter 9 and verse 59. And he said unto another, follow me. Now that is the same invitation that Jesus gave to Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? And the Bible says, we just read it in Mark chapter 1, that immediately they forsook what they were doing. They left what they were doing. They didn't say, okay, let's, let's just finish this month's, you know, payroll. Let's just work on our, our, um, you know, our succession plan. Who's going to take our place? The Bible says immediately they left what they had 
and they followed Jesus. But here is a very different situation. Verse 59. He says, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Now, when I read this, I think, well, that's a pretty good reason, isn't it? That's a pretty good request. I mean, if your father has just died and you are responsible for making arrangements, perhaps, that's a reasonable request. Jesus answers with something that always puzzled me. And I I, I read this verse for many years and wondered, why in the world did Jesus say what he said? It seemed completely out of character with Jesus. It just seemed like Jesus was being unreasonable, irrational, insensitive. And that's not the Jesus I know. The Bible says that the man said to him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus says in verse 60, let the what? Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus, what are you trying to say? I mean, does Jesus not care about dead people and their families? The Jesus that I know, he wept at Lazarus' tomb, right? The Jesus that I know had compassion on the widow of Nain as as he met that funeral procession going down the road to bury her son. And he resurrected him from the dead. The Jesus I know said, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, kumai. And that little girl who was dead was raised back to life. And the Jesus I know was not just compassionate enough to raise her from the dead. He was sensitive enough to her needs to say, she's hungry, get her something to eat. I mean, everyone else was just sort of still in shock and awe and and not even real. Jesus understood this girl's hungry. She's been sick for how long? Probably hadn't eaten. And now she had a ravenous appetite because she was made whole. That's the Jesus I know. And how can he say to this man who says, Lord, I want to follow you. You've invited me to follow you, but please let me go first and bury my father. Verse 61. Evidently another invitation Jesus made. Can you imagine? Let me pause just a second here. Can you imagine in hindsight having been invited to be one of the 12 disciples and having turned down that invitation? Can you imagine? You'd feel maybe a little ashamed of yourself, your decisions, huh? But no more ashamed than we would be if having been invited to follow Jesus today, we turn down the same decision. God has given us a wonderful privilege and we should not just marvel at previous men's inability to see their opportunities. We should make it relevant to our hearts, shouldn't we? And realize God has given us opportunities as well. We ought to be making the most of them. So here we go in verse 61. Lord, he says, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So maybe you're wondering, as I wondered, how can we reconcile the two Jesuses? 
How can we reconcile the Jesus that was full of compassion and tenderness and sympathized with those who were suffering, who mourned with those who were mourning, with this passage where he says, let the dead bury their dead. You want to go back and tell your family goodbye? You're not fit for the kingdom of God. How can we reconcile that these passages? I think the answer is actually quite simple. You see, I don't think that Jesus was necessarily saying, you can correct me if you have better ideas, but I don't think Jesus here was necessarily saying it's wrong to comfort those who are mourning. Do you? I don't even think he was telling this man who said, let me go and first bury my father, that he couldn't go and take care of his family responsibilities. I think what he was saying was, don't wait to make the decision to follow me until after you've straightened up your life affairs. Do you understand the difference? Jesus would not be saying it's wrong to comfort those who are mourning. He's not saying it's wrong to honor your father and your mother because he gave that commandment. So he must have been saying, you want to make a decision to follow me, but don't wait until some time when it's more convenient. Don't wait until it's some time when, it's, when, it, when, when you don't have other things pressing on your plate, on your agenda. Don't wait until you've already taken care of the affairs. If you want to follow me, there's something that you must do. You must decide and do it now. That's what I think Jesus is trying to say. There's something urgent about it. There's an urgency here. The principle, I believe, that is found here in Luke 9, 59 to 62. We will always have some excuse for putting off our decision for Jesus until after we've accomplished something else. Are you with me? There will always be something that presses on our plate, that presses in our time and our agenda. And subconsciously or consciously, we're tempted to think, I'll make a decision to follow Jesus. I am making a decision to follow Jesus, but I'm going to start then. You understand? I'm going to start then, after I've done, after I've gone here, after I've accomplished this, after I've... And Jesus is saying, no. The invitation to follow me is now. There's an urgency to it. He would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. When the, when the invitation to follow Jesus comes, no matter what you still have to take care of in your life or you think you have to take care of in your life, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let Him lead you in taking care of everything else. I don't believe this man was really being prevented from going and taking care of his father's funeral. I think what Jesus was saying is, don't put off following me until you've taken care of those details. Go as a disciple of me to your father's funeral. Don't wait until some future day. Oh, but these young these these men would have argued, I am deciding to follow you. I'm just going to start after. Jesus is saying no. There's an urgency to the word. When we decide to follow Jesus, we decide to follow him today. And any other decision could be a deception. 
Think with me just a moment about that. There's something clever the devil might trick our minds into doing. He might trick us into thinking, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, when really we've simply made a decision that someday we're going to follow Jesus. And having made that halfway decision, we settle into a comfortable complacency, which he doesn't mind at all. There's an urgency to the Word of God. If we're going to follow the Word, we need to obey it now. You remember the story from Ezekiel's time? They liked to hear the Word of God. They liked to hear the sermons. They even invited their neighbors and friends. They heard, but they didn't do. So we're going to look this, this morning at three reasons why the Word of God is urgent. John chapter 7, verse 17. Turn with me there. John chapter 7 and verse 17. John seven seventeen. Three reasons why the Word of God is urgent. It comes with this inherent urgency within it. John seven seventeen. Jesus is speaking here. He's uh, speaking to the temple and he's teaching. It says here, And if any man will do his will, the Father's, He will know of the doctrine, whether I speak of myself or whether I speak of God. I'm sorry, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So Jesus here gives us a principle. If you want to know what is truth, whether this is God speaking or this is some man speaking, we want to know the difference, right? If you want to be able to know what is truth, what's really coming from God, there's a simple principle. Obey what you know is true. If any man will do his will, if you'll obey, if you're a doer, not just a hearer, right? Then you will know whether it's true or not. So the first principle here, failure to follow or obey the word will lead to the inability to understand the word. The inability to understand the word. Are you with me on that? Do you see this principle in what Jesus is saying here? If you want to know what is truth, obey what you know is truth. And you will be enabled to understand what is coming from God and what is coming from man. If you're not obeying the truth, you're not going to be able to have that understanding of the word. John 12, verse 35. John 12, verse 35. Jesus here gives us an analogy, an illustration to help us to understand this whole concept of obedience of truth. John, 11, um, John 12 and verse 35, Jesus says unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. I remember one time I was in the jungle, and um, we were hiking to a very remote village near um, Borneo, and um, it was in the, on one of the islands in Malaysia. And um, we, were, we had left. We actually had a clinic in one village, and then we were supposed to be the next morning in the next village. We, it was dark by the time we left. And these, uh, we had a guide, and he said, don't worry, it's not too far. You can, you can just follow me. And uh, we asked, how far is this? This is in the jungle, and this is at night. How far is it? He said, it's, 
It's about the. Uh, it, it's about one cigarette. Um, this was their best measurement of time. Um, these, th- I, I could tell you a lot of stories from this uh, trip. There were, there were. Um, I thought only National Geographic went to places like this. You know, um, very eye-opening experience. But um, one cigarette. Well, about uh, we, by the time we got to the next village, we were convinced they had some amazing cigarettes in that part of the world because I think it took us about two or three hours slipping and sliding through the rain and crossing rivers to our waist in the dark and trying to balance across logs over creeks. And, and um, the problem was, one of the problems was, he was our guide. There was probably 25 of us, I don't know. And his he had a torch, like a literal torch burning, a stick burning. That was his light. And um, there was probably about a third or a fourth of the rest of us that had flashlights. And the rest were literally in the dark. You had to keep up with someone who had a light or else you were in trouble. Let me tell you, big trouble. And every once in a while, our, our determined expedition would be punctuated by the terrified screams of someone who had lost their step and slid down the rice paddy into the river or some other uh, catastrophe. We made it. But I learned something on that trek through the jungle that night. When there's a light and it's moving, you've got to keep up with it. You've got to keep up with it. And Jesus here is saying, the light doesn't sit still. Truth doesn't sit still. Oh, you can be exposed to lots of knowledge. But that knowledge doesn't just stay sitting right in church where you're comfortable in the pews. That knowledge is moving. And in order for you to keep up with the knowledge, the light of truth, you have to be doing what you're learning. Does that make sense? Walk. Walk while you have the light, Jesus said. Because if you don't walk while you have the light, something's going to happen. What's going to happen? You're going to be left in darkness. The second principle that we find here, why the Word of God is urgent... If we do not follow the word, we will soon be found in a condition where we're not able to follow the word. Failure to follow the word will lead to the inability to follow the word. Are you with me? Because right now we see the light and we understand the truth and we think, oh, I can always, I can always decide later. I can always obey later. But once that light has gone on, which we have failed to follow, it's hard to find that light again. We, we, have a, we have a difficult time, once we've become desensitized and hardened to truth, actually understanding it and following it again. Do you see why the Word of God is urgent? Failure to follow the Word leads to the inability to follow the Word. And finally, we see here in James 1, verses 22 to 25. Turn with me there. That'll be our, our last... Well, I won't promise the last, but I think about the last one we're going to turn to this morning. James chapter 1, verses 22-25. The Bible says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. <laughs> I can remember as a teenager reading that verse. And thinking, what kind of a deception is self-deception? I mean, I've been deceived before. I've been told lies. I've been left in the dark. I've been, I've been manipulated. I've been, I've been deceived pretty badly. 
in my life. Sometimes you get angry. Sometimes you're hurt. But the worst deception the human being can experience, I'm convinced, is self-deception. Self-deception. And according to James, this takes place when you're a hearer but not a doer. Hear but not a doer. Verse, uh, continuing on, it says, um, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For beholds himself and goes his way and forgets, straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But he says in verse 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Aren't you glad the word of God isn't just negative, it's also positive? I mean, it tells us it's pretty bad because failure to follow the word leads to spiritual deception, spiritual self-deception. But James, thankfully, doesn't end there. He tells us there's a blessing to those who do follow the word. Amen? There's a blessing. There's a blessing. What should we do then once we recognize the urgency of the word? What should we do about it? I think that there is an appropriate response that David records for us. In Psalm 95, verse 6, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. If we recognize... If we we recognize the inevitability of the word, that God's word is true, if we realize this is relevant to me and we apply this urgency of the word to our hearts, I don't know about you, but when, when I realize that God's word is urgent for me today, it leads me to want to do what David did, to fall on my knees and say, Lord, help me. Help me to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Help me. To not just have the knowledge, but not the action, the corresponding actions. David continues on in Psalms 95 and verse 7. He says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, as in the day of the temptation in the wilderness. David says, The response of my heart is, I want to worship the Lord. I want to kneel down, bow down before Him. I want to give myself to Him. And when is the best time to do that? It's today. Today, if you hear His voice, David says, harden not your heart. Why today? Because today is the day of salvation. Today, if we hear His voice, is the best day to respond to the urgency of the Word. Are you with me? Today is the best day. Why is it so important to respond today? I want to just give you four reasons as we're closing. We're not going to look at these verses, but I'm just going to read them for you. Four reasons why today is the best day to respond to the urgency of the word. The first reason is this. The Bible says in Romans 14 and verse 7, None of us liveth to himself and no man dies to himself. In English, we have a saying that says something like this, no man is an island. You heard that? It's a biblical principle. We all have an influence on people around us. The first reason, I want you to seriously consider why today is the best day to respond to the urgency of the word is because influence 
like words can never be taken back. Influence, like words, can never be taken back. You know, I've had the opportunity through the years of working with many people, many young people, and I think of specific instances where young people were making decisions that weren't good decisions. They were sowing their wild oats, you might say. Their spirits were spirits of rebellion. And I praise the Lord. I had one friend who, who went through this period of his life. And um, today he's back with Jesus. He ended up preparing for the ministry. He's, he's involved at a... Um, he actually teaches in a college. Um, teaches Bible. So I praise the Lord for his decision. But he had a cousin who was influenced by his time making bad decisions. As far as I know, I, ha- I knew that cousin well. He was a brilliant young man. Because of the influence of his older cousin, a few years older than him, 1920, 21, I don't remember. This young man also began trying to sow his wild oats. And to my knowledge, he used drugs one time. And it destroyed his mind. He will always have the mentality of about a 12-year-old. He's handicapped. And I look at my friend who, praise God, has been restored to the grace of God. And I see the influence that he gave his cousin, which can never be taken back. And I think this is one of the reasons why today is the best day. To recognize the urgency of the word. Because even if we're not that bad, you know, our influence is telling either for God or for the enemy of souls. Your influence, like your words, can never be taken back. Acts 24 and verse 25, Paul is reasoning before Felix. And the Bible says, as Paul was preaching, that as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix, this is the Roman ruler, Felix, a powerful man, Felix trembled. There was something happening in Felix's heart. The Holy Spirit had opened the doors of his mind, the windows of his mind, for the first time in clarity like he had never seen before. He saw himself as a sinner. He realized he was resisting the truth of God. The urgency of the word came into his heart. And Paul appealed to him to make the decision today. And what did Felix say? He said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. The second reason why today is the best day is because it's guaranteed there will never come a better, more convenient season. There will never be a more convenient time or a more convenient season. Now, Felix, as we understand, never came to the point of inviting Jesus into his heart and making him the savior of his life. It doesn't mean, I'm not trying to say that if you reject Jesus' grace or God, the urgency of the word today, that somehow there will be no further opportunity for salvation. No, not at all. 
What I'm saying is it won't be any easier any time in the future. If you're waiting for a more convenient time, it won't come. Tomorrow, the decision to do the right thing will be harder than it is today. The more convenient season never comes. And so today is the best day to respond to the urgency of the word. Matthew 7, verse 24, the story Jesus gave of the building of characters like the building of a house. Remember, it says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Which is easier, to build right the first time or have to tear down and build again? If you've ever built a house, you know it's better to start on a good foundation rather than finish the house and realize your foundation is poor. And so the principle I shared, you can write in if you like, unlearning is always more difficult than learning. Are you with me? That's why today's the best day. Unlearning is always more difficult than learning. So many times while walking outside of what I knew was God's will for my life, putting things and ideas and habits and thoughts into my mind, I found it took years to take out. Years, just a few moments. But it took years to take those out of my mind. And only God's grace, accepted today, can keep us from having to unlearn what we otherwise would regret tomorrow. The last one, James 4 and verse 14. James tells us, Whereas you know not what shall be in the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor. It's like the fog on one of these mornings. When the sun comes up, what happens to it? James says it's like a vapor. It appears for a time and then vanishes away. That's our lives. None of us know about tomorrow. None of us know about tomorrow. I remember we were in Romania, and a couple of my students were preaching at a little mountain village, Rukar, I think was the name. And we were, I was preaching in a town nearby, and they were... um, presenting evangelistic series every night. And one night, they presented the gospel story, the topic of salvation. And um, they, they used a card call, you know. They, instead of making an appeal for someone to come forward and pray or an altar call, they asked them to fill out this card and to respond, indicate how they wanted to decide, what decisions they wanted to make. And, you know, you've probably seen those cards before. One of the options might have been, I want to... Um, I've never accepted Jesus as my Savior before, and I would like to do so for the first time. You can just check that if you like. Another option was, I once walked with Jesus, but I've wandered away, and I want to return to living for Jesus. You can check that box. The third usually is, I love Jesus, but I want to rededicate today my life to Him, to following Him. Something along those lines, you know. And... um, they held their, they made their appeal, had the calls, the cards, collected the cards, and and went, went home for the night. The next night they were there setting up meeting in the in the little church there, and um, they noticed that there was one grandma who always came and sat in the same place. She was always there early. She wasn't there, and so my students they asked the the, the translator, "Where's this one grandma? She's always sitting right there. She's always in the same place." She's not there tonight. And the translator said, Oh, didn't you hear? Last night after the meeting, that lady went home. 
She went to bed as always. And she never woke up. She died in her sleep. Now that's sobering news. What do you think my students did? They immediately, they went to look through those cards. You know, sometimes they had seen them the night before, but they hadn't connected the names of the faces in all cases. And so they, they went and they looked through those cards and they finally found her card and they wanted to see if she had checked one of those boxes. And sure enough, she had made a check mark on the box that said, I have never accepted Jesus as my Savior before, but I would like to do so tonight for the first time. You think they were happy? Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not an old grandma. I'm not going to die in my sleep. Life is uncertain for any of us. None of us know about tomorrow. I've had two of my students, 15 and 19 years old, picture of health, never suspected their life would be snuffed out in a few short seconds. We don't know about tomorrow. I remember Pastor Moody, when he was pastoring here in Chicago, he had a tendency to always make an appeal in his sermons. And one Wednesday night, he decided, you know, I always make appeals. And he decided he wasn't going to make an appeal. He sent his members home. That night, in the middle of the night, he was sound asleep, and there was someone pounding on his door. He woke up startled. He heard screaming outside. He opened the door. Nobody was there, but the street was full of people running and screaming. Pastor Moody looked. Just down a number of houses was a wall of fire. And it was quickly coming up the street. Pastor Moody was able to grab his family, his kids, and the clothes they had on and run out into the street and join the crowds who were running from the flames. That night, the Chicago fire destroyed a third of the city of Chicago. 90,000 people were left homeless. Hundreds of people died. And many of them were Pastor Moody's own church members. Pastor Moody said, I will never forgive myself for not making an appeal. None of us know about tomorrow. Amen. The Word of God is urgent. It's not safe to put off for tomorrow what we can decide today. So when I see these things, I don't know about you, but I have to look at my heart and I have to ask myself the question, what is my decision today? Am I just hearing the Word of God or do I really want to do what I hear? Do I really want to obey? I know we don't always have full knowledge and we still have questions and we still, we still have doubts and we're still human we still fail, Right? But what is my decision for Jesus today? Am I just coming and hearing the word of God like those in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's day? Am I, hear, am I hearing and doing the word of God? My decision today, the decision I want to make, is to be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer also. Is that your decision? Would you like to make that decision with me today? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, you know each heart. You know the struggles that we each face. Lord, we thank you. We've already seen in this series how your word is inevitable. Your promises are for us. They will be true. 
your promise to save us, to change us, to cleanse our hearts, to forgive us. Those are all promises that will not return unto you void. They are yea and amen for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we've also seen that we have a tendency to just apply what we know to be truth to people around us, but not to ourselves. Lord, it's so easy to judge others, but not to recognize our own heart's condition. Our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. So, Lord, we want to make today the message we've heard relevant. I want to make it relevant to my heart. I may be the preacher, but I need your grace and your forgiveness and your power. Today we've learned about the urgency of the word, the danger of putting it off until tomorrow. Lord, you don't accept, you don't accept a decision for you that is a decision to live for you sometime in the future. The only decision you accept is the decision to live for you now. So, Lord, today, if there's someone here who hears your voice speaking, Lord, like I hear your voice speaking, help them not to harden their hearts, but to make that decision today to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to know that all these other things will be added unto them. Lord, you can solve any problem that we're involved in. You can, you can, you can deal with our, our family issues, even if we have deaths in the family. You can deal with our complicated businesses. You can deal with all of those things, Lord. But today we need to give our hearts to you and to trust you. So, Lord, let no one leave only having heard today. But let each one of us, including myself, not only hear but do as we seek to give our hearts and our lives, our minds, our talents to you today. Fulfill your promise to us that all these things will be added unto us. Today, those who make those decisions, Lord, show them in a miraculous way how you are able and you're capable and you're willing and you will do what you've promised to perform. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.